Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Today we have a special dialogue with Dr. Sarah Breen Lovett, who is engaged in a combined practice of architecture, art, and mindfulness. For the past 25 years, this practice has focused on deepening understandings of relationships between the self and what we generally refer to as the environment around us. Beginning with a dedicated architectural design career that spanned 10 years, she was employed as a practicing architectural and interior designer with first-class honors, I might add. Uh, she worked on numerous residential, commercial, and industrial projects in Sydney and London. Now, following this period of architectural practice, Sarah began to expand into art practice and to focus on awareness of self in place through the act of filming and curating exhibitions of single-screen digital video works. This most notably included the co-curation of the Senesity Architectural Film as part of the Australian Institute of Architects Conference. This filmic practice was then extended through curation of installations and performances in relation to architectural spaces, most notably through the expanded architecture exhibitions that were held over four years as part of the Sydney Architecture Festival. Alongside these curated exhibitions, Sarah continued her own practice of moving image installation, which focused on haptic and habitual relationships to the built environment. Together, these curated works and installations form part of Sarah's PhD, called Expanded Architectural Awareness Through the Intersection of Expanded Cinema and Architecture. Her most recent art and architectural projects have shifted to a more explicit emphasis on earth building, mindfulness, interconnectivity, and sociocultural elements of design. Creating deeper connections to self and place through architecture, as well as through co-design processes that bring together community and contemporary art practices. Sarah is currently adjunct researcher at Monash University and employed as creative content coordinator for Building 4.0 CRC. This extends her roles of architectural researcher at the Innovation in Applied Design Lab at University of Sydney and manager of the Future Building Initiative at Monash University. Publications of research from her practices have included Expanded Architecture, Temporal Form, published by the Bauhaus Foundation Dassau and AADR, and a, a chapter in Flow, Between Interior and Landscape, published by Bloomsbury, Inter- and Transdisciplinary Relationships in Architecture, by AITNER, Mediated Identities in the Futures of Place, Emerging Practices and Spatial Cultures, and Effective Architectures, by Springer, Architecture Filmmaking, by Intellect, 
as well as articles in Architectural Science Review, Scroop Cambridge Architecture Journal, and the Journal of Architecture and Related Arts. And if you need help with any of that, I can put that in the show notes. So that's a lot of deep practice, Sarah, and uh, I welcome you to Dangerous Wisdom. How are you feeling today? Thank you. Yeah, very good. And I'm um, really honored to be here and, and excited, looking forward to our conversation because I find your insights very valuable for reflecting on my own practice. So, um, yes, really looking forward to this. That's wonderful. And, and will you tell us, you were telling me a little bit, where are you situated now in the world? Um, I live in a place called the Blue Mountains. It's the um, home of the Darug and Gundungurra people. Um, of Australia, and it's about two hours west of Sydney. Um, it's a mountain range, which is about uh, up to a thousand meters high, and it's a um, site of um, a national, international significance as a World Heritage Site, UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, and it ranges from the Jurassic rainforest down the bottom of the valleys. Um, through to dry eucalyptus forests as well. So it's a full range of, um, yeah, different different types of bush, as we like to call it in Australia, that we walk in here. Wow. A, 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 a world heritage site, huh? That's really a special place. I mean, all places are special, but that, that must be a really special place. Yeah, it is. It's very beautiful. It's a very strange place um i was i was born here and moved away for a long time and um i guess determined as an adult to come back here because it holds a very mysterious energy a very deep and ancient energy um yeah very different to i just came back from living in ireland for um a couple of years and um it's a very different relationship to the landscape that you can have here or that I experience here anyway. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think when it, someone says Blue Mountains, I think of uh, both the Blue Ridge Mountains here on Turtle Island, where I lived for a few years, and also Dogen's essay on mountains and waters, and he speaks of the Blue Mountains walking. He writes about the walking of the Blue Mountains and uh, how we can learn. Now, obviously, when you read that, you think, but mountains don't walk. And Dogen is saying, look, uh, you, you don't understand your own walking, so don't tell me that mountains don't walk. Uh, he's trying to turn us back to look at ourselves. And uh, he was a mountain practitioner. He lived uh, in the mountains. And many, it's, a, it's an old spiritual uh, around the world, obviously. And it's a, certainly a big thing in the Sino-Japanese traditions for the sages to go up in the mountains and stay in Tibet, of course. Of, I mean, they're at the roof of the world, but you, I was just reading uh, Shabkar, who writes a lot about being in these mountain places and how wonderful that is and uh, what teachers the, the landscape. He seems to have really saw the teachings in the land in various ways. So it's really special. And uh, so, I don't, to what degree? I don't know if you want to to talk about how that has influenced. But I, I thought maybe we could start. What is this idea of bringing together art, architecture, and what we refer to as, as mindfulness? I don't know. Did, is there some influence in the spiritual traditions of the, your place, or where did that come in? And tell, maybe if you wouldn't mind talking about why what you see as important there. Mm. Um. 
I guess the practicing of architecture for myself um, and then moving into the art practice was always a way of extending, I guess, my experience of self into the world and then integrating the world back into myself. So it was sort of like a two-way relationship from a young age um, and I... I find great value and, you know, peace in just being with the physicality of the world around us in its different forms. And I guess when I started with the architecture, um, you know, initially that was a curiosity um, but also a way of um, trying to make places that that drew attention to, I guess, just being here, the simplicity of place. Um, and then with the, uh, with, I guess, the, the process of architecture is a lot more complicated um, and layered and time takes a lot of time. And, um, and I found it easier to express and explore ideas around this through the filmic medium of you know making videos and um making installations and I found with that I could really um go a bit deeper into understanding our existing relationships to place um and so for me it was always about a honing in on that and I guess more recently I mean I've always practiced different types of meditation and yoga more recently Qigong um, and I guess probably one of the more I, I dip in and, in and out a little bit of reading Eckhart Tolle and listening to him um, and but I guess I'm a bit of a solitary practitioner in some ways in that I find that words can be a useful guide but the experience of it is so much more um and so yeah I guess I went through mindfulness teacher training through um, mindfulness Australia um about a couple of years ago and I did find that a very useful process in in kind of honing my practice um and becoming more aware of different layers of practice uh, so I guess it's just an ever-deepening experience. Um, yeah. Now, is that, is that is uh, that training? Do they have you read the Buddhist uh, teaching on mindfulness? Did you read uh, Siddhartha's teachings? They, was, they were there. They were there as a you could do, but no, they didn't. Um, it was very much practice based in that you um, it was an eight week uh, undertaking an eight week course of meditation every day and journaling the process um, and there was different things that you had to focus on each week and so it was very practice based but but you would focus on the one thing for one week mm. in your meditations all week twice a day 20 minutes a day um and it was interesting just how the just one aspect can change into so many different layers 
<laughs> you know, just mm -hmm. by, by focusing on that one thing for a week. Um, so, yeah, it was very much a practice-based um, approach, I guess. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, obviously, in that tradition, he was giving, but my point is he was giving a list of instructions to practice. So it would be like saying, the reason I ask is because it could be a, a, akin to saying, oh, I took a cooking class, uh, you know, uh, uh, about Julia Child's style of cooking. And then I said, well, did they give you her recipes? He said, well, they were there, but uh, we, we didn't we didn't look at them. We just did the practice. So uh, I'm just trying to get a sense of how people teach that because it's a question, you know, I get, get curious. So when you say that we're different things to focus on because what we're going to bring this off everybody who's wondering well, why isn't the architecture i think we're talking about something really important here that we can only ever have the experience of the world and architecture is it, how we make it how we design it and how we are in it is either conducive to certain kinds of experience of the world or not and certainly it's just really rare to hear someone say, well, arch architecture and abiding in a place should be a practice of mindfulness. And that's why I'm just asking about some of the elements that they would have taught you and, and what, as a philosopher, what, how does that strike me? So can you share um, just briefly some of the things that they had you, you say, well, there's one thing we worked on each week. What were the things that they would have um, you? I guess, yeah, some of them were... Um just we watched the breath for a week okay um with that and then watched your thoughts in relation to the breath okay um and so you would kind of build on that um you might consider your emotions um as thoughts um as they rise yeah and then for the next week you might consider where those emotions rise into different parts of the body mm -hmm. um one week you may just be thinking about the body yeah um and so I guess it's always a bringing back to a, something in the physical realm, but then watching the way that your thoughts go with, in relation to that consideration. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. So it was very simple. Sounds as well for a week on sounds. Nice. Um, for a, we a week on what you could see in front of you, just contemplating because I was staring at a wall, <laughs> a wall, a week of a white wall, do you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it's interesting. I guess it depends on what you're going through that day or where your mind's at that day or other influences. Different times of day affected it quite deeply as well. Um, and I think it was just a very good training in that, you know, because I would begin and I'd be like, oh, well, what else is there, do you know? Where else is this going to go? Where's the magic in this? And that's one thing that I think with mindfulness, sometimes I still feel a bit, um, um, I can come to an empty space of the void space quite readily, which is wonderful and expansive. But it also can leave one with a feeling of what else is there. Do you know? You get. I felt like I went for so long to try to, to become to that space easily yeah um and then when you when i first reached that empty space i was so excited it was like oh it's here oh hang on no it's not because now i'm thinking about how it's here and yeah. and then you know the that gap between the thoughts would become greater and greater until you can more readily go into that and then it's almost like well what else is what is where does this go to now that's right. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because for the for in that tradition, of course, that that's only one stop. Because that void is not. Some people mistakenly think that that's what Siddhartha 
meant by emptiness, but that's not what he meant. So then we have to somehow get, we do have to go past that in a certain way. I mean, important, it's essential. I'm not saying like, oh, like maybe we have to, no, we do have to go past it. So yeah, that's right, that's true. But nevertheless, this practice had enough of an impact on you that you thought it was important to integrate into architecture somehow. Can you say something about that process? Or like, how did you, how do you go from, I mean, I can understand it from the one hand, because as a philosopher, I say, well, of course, you know, that makes sense. But for you, what, where, what was that like, that movement? Mm. It's a really good question. I, I think initially, in my earlier practices, I just found great, um, I guess, as I said before, great peace in, in being in a place and really just being with that place. Mm-hmm. And whether that's energetically, materially, um, you know, from a, you know, cerebrally in terms of where things have come from and where, how they're made, you know, it's a life cycle thing. Um, as a habituated thing, like I know I'm about to walk up this set of stairs and how does my body become ready for that? Hmm. How do I know what to do? Where's my mind going in the expectation of moving up that set of stairs? You know, there happens to be a window at the top and what kind of relief or release does that give my spirit looking out to the horizon and then turning back in again towards the interior, the kind of the the how it how it holds you how does that feel to be held by a building i feel these things quite deeply i guess and i thought um yeah i just i just thought that with the process and then so that's the process of being in a space the process of designing a space is quite abstract because you're imagining all these things and really for me it's not until it's physically there do you actually really understand in its full extent? Do you know? And some things that you thought were going to be there aren't, aren't there. And then the process of making, um, you know, with this the, the project that we've been talking about previously and you've been helping me think about with the Fast Slow project, the process of making can be so fraught with expectation and deadlines and time and all these things can come in to interrupt the peace that you can feel for making something with your hands. Mm. But it's kind of the mind can get in the way of that. And I guess it's how do we, sustaining a meditative mind um, or peaceful experience while you're in a building is much easier than when you're making one mm-hmm. um, as well. And, and I think a lot of people can find the process of DIY and making architecture quite stressful, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, well, how, why is that? What are the blocks? What are the, the things that make it hard and what can we do to make that, to bring out that joy of making? Mm. Now, this is part of the, I think, a revolutionary dimension of what you're trying to do, which is to make, of course, we see all these blogs about all kinds of things, you know, like, I, and I'm thinking just really quickly about reading this fellow who decided to rent a van, and a nice one, a Mercedes Sprinter van, and go out and just for a weekend, 
live the van life that everybody sees everywhere. And he just said, this is miserable. I'm never doing it again. And when he wrote about it, then he got people contacting him who were real van life livers and said, thank you for saying that because this actually is my way of life and it's being ruined by a bunch of people who don't know how to live this way. They're not mindful. They create trash, real like serious things, like even, you know, human feces being at sites where that would never have been, never would have seen that, um, you know, five, ten years ago. And now they're at places where they used to be able to go and live their van life. They can't because the cops are just not wanting all this going on. And, and lots of people being miserable. But taking these very shiny photographs that look all, you know, like this is the sexy life that I have. And then, you know, meanwhile, they go just two minutes later, drive over to some parking lot where they can't see anything. And that's where they camp because that's where they can plug in and all this. So it's really interesting because there is a lot of DIY culture. It could be revolutionary if people could realize, hey, I could have a home for $50,000 even here on Turtle Island, like a real nice place that I made, but that there's a lot that could... (laughs) They could become really burdensome and hard and and all of that, and we could lose some of the real important thing, which is connection to the land and connection to something deep in ourselves. Do, do, do you mind talking a little bit about more about that DIY? And and um, I don't know if you, whatever you feel comfortable saying about what you're working with in that realm. Mm, I think, um, well, I guess the DIY with... Um, you know, it's it's always a balance with what materials you can get where you are. Yeah. And, you know, you may have these idealistic notions that I'm only going to use 100%, you know, sustainably resourced materials from just around the corner, but they may not be there. Um, and also, you know, yeah, you know, you do have to tap into these large organisations that supply stuff as well, you know, if you're going to build. Um, you can't, there's no 100% purest way, you know, to build a house and make it, you know, thermally sealed um, and efficient, really, um, as much as we, I'd like there to be. And I would prefer to use natural materials um, I think working with natural materials like timber is very rewarding. You know, you can feel the age in the timber, or the respect, you know, but how do you, you know, you don't want to waste that either. Um, and, you know, keeping these things exposed rather than we would have timber and then we would cover it all up with plasterboard and make everything you know, kind of neat and clean, but we don't see the underworkings of things. Um, So I'm interested in that as well. But I think, you know, working with earth um, materials, I've done a bit of that over over my time and with cob and straw bale and hempcrete and uh, different materials like that. And there's just something about having your hands in the earth that is very deeply connecting to yourself and to the place and really slowing down. Mm-hmm. I think there's, you know, a lot of people garden because they say there's antidepressants in the soil, um, you know, just, you know, even with play therapy with children, you use clay as opposed to, say, some, you know, some kind of plasticine material because it really connects deeply with us 
where we're from and where we're going to. Um, and I just feel that if there's a way that we can make the process of making the buildings a bit easier to take the stressful parts out, <laughs> we could enjoy that, that deep connection. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be wonderful, you know. Yeah. We just did a week's renovation inside. We've got a, a house here which is about 110 years old and beautiful little cottage. And um, we all, you know, we dabble on little bits of it now and then. Um, but we did a week over the Christmas break of taking out a window and putting in a door, myself and my husband. And it was a great exercise in what not to do. <laughs> Just put it that way. I was documenting all our arguments, all the stressful parts, all the things, you know, that were really not working. Um, And I saw it as a really great learning curve of, you know, you don't want to end up in this kind of mental state when you're renovating something. And I could have documented everything that happened in my mind and externally to get me to that space. And so I'm planning on doing a series of renovations now that where I can adjust the framework each time. And it might be little things like just work for two hours and and have that as your goal. Don't have the end product as your goal because otherwise you could work all day, you know, and be exhausted by the end of it and the outcome won't be as good. Um, You know, set your intention at the beginning of the day. You know, what's the most important thing here? Um, and then always trying to keep it in balance because I think when you've got a DIY project, it's always, you know, deadline-driven or you've got another thing to do and another thing to do. Um, and then how do you sequence it so it's easy? How do you know where to get the materials from? You know, it can be stressful. What do you do when you've got them there? How can you see 10 steps down the line? Um, and I think a great teaching that I had from yourself and um, Kathy Fitzgerald as part of the eco-literacy course was this idea of, you know, not ticking off the boxes and doing things in a way you think you have to, like as a conquest consciousness, I think you call it. Um, how do you grow like a tree grows towards the sun and let other parts die off? And that really has stayed with me ever since you you said that. And I just feel that when you you have to let go, when you're renovating and <laughs> you're doing DIY, you do. You have to let go of all those um, things that you have in your mind about why you're doing it and what it's going to look like in the end and you do have to let it go as a process, do you know, and the yeah. imperfection as well, you know, let, um, kind of embracing the imperfections and the handmadeness, do you know. Yeah. This is never going to look like somebody that's trained for 10 years in carpentry. It's not going to look like that. So it's going to look like you made it, <laughs> Do you know, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's all this. So I'm in the process now of documenting these, you know, tussles that we have with ourselves and trying to find ways to come around that. And then hopefully when we get to the point of building the earth shelter, um, it's a bit more honed and I can keep developing it yeah yeah i mean it's different if you grow up in a in a culture that is doing that like in ladakh you know that the old 
documentary on the dock, how everybody knew, knew how to build the houses, you know, so they would just, you know, this family needs a house, so we all just go there and we all build it and we all know how to do it. And they all look nice, you know. Um, I mean, that was the old way. Now, you know, things are different because, uh, you know, one of the people was asked, well, where's the, where's the poor? Where are the poor houses? You know, where are the, and he thought and said, well, no, all the houses look like this. You know, no, we don't have a different place where there's people. And then, you know, 10 years later, that same fellow was begging in the street for money, um, you know, because it had gotten developed, you know. So it's mm-hmm. like a, a shift over just, you know, 10 years before it, it got severely exposed, Ladakh got severely exposed to this conquest consciousness and the way we do things. And, you know, like even I was thinking as you were talking, like there are plenty of cultures would have work songs and they would, you know, they might have people who, like their main thing was to go around and clown around with people, you know, like they weren't there to really, you know, put put boards together, but their thing was to, you know, like get somebody a drink of water, make a joke, you know. And uh, yeah. and pe- people who knew the songs, and we could all. I remember watching that do- documentary about Ladakh, and and they were translating the song. Everyone was it was in the fields, and they did like about four months of work to get their entire year's food, and they all did it together. And the song they were singing, which was a call and response, was uh, that they were translating it as "Take it easy now." And then, of course, everybody else, "Take it easy now. Don't work too hard. Don't work too hard." So I'm not. I don't want to. You know create a false picture but i do think that we are kind of foolish with the way we are overburden ourselves with nonsense and then we don't know how to do these basic things that might make us feel really nice and connected and you're right yeah they might be imperfect but we if we had a culture of it we'd get pretty darn good at it wouldn't we yeah 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 that's right i think one of the interesting things when i was in ireland i was fortunate enough to go to a few earth building workshops and one in particular at the hollies in Enniskeen and we had um you know we were throwing the cog balls to one another from one end of the site to the other and the joy like the joy of throwing these mud balls to one another in this train and we got into a real rhythm you know like even talking about it now I'm getting goosebumps it's like you turn and then the person throwed you the ball and you turn it back and you throw it and you turn and it was just you just felt like part of this bigger thing you know and Everyone was smiling, you know, it was so, and I said, I asked the organiser, I said, does anyone do this and not like it, you know, because it was just eliciting so much joy. She said, not really, no, <laughs> she said everyone really enjoys it, you know, kid, it might turn into a bit of a mud fight with kids, you know, um, but it's, yeah, it's, there's just something about that working together and I think in Ireland there was also the tradition of the singing while the cob mixing was going on, probably in lots of countries, you know, because it's heavy work mixing earth in straw with your feet um, and you can get very tired. And that's the thing too about being really mindful of the body. So at that course every morning we did a little bit of kind of a little bit of yoga and stretching and reflecting on how our body was responding because it's your greatest instrument, you know, when you're, when you're building and, um, and it can break down. You know, and I remember after the first few days, my hands were really reacting to the earth. And I was like, but I want to feel connected. I want to feel this feeling forever. But my hands were saying, no, I had little cuts all over them. I had to put my gloves on, do you know? And um, and I think it's just, it's just that knowing when to go forward and knowing when to pull back is important in everything, isn't it? Um, yeah, sometimes I had to mix the cob with my with my Wellingtons on, you know, my gum boots or whatever you call them, <laughs> and um, 
yeah, it wasn't the same, but, you know, you kind of, you've got to respect your body as well. Yeah. Mm. It's mm. interesting what you were talking about there, reminding me of, a, you know, there has been this study of cultural differences in cognition, Nisbet and Wilson and others have done this, uh, and, you know, like there are certain, um, there's a classic example, is there's a, a certain picture of a kind of iconic fish, you know, and and in the picture, it, it, what it looks like if you are from turtle from the dominant culture, people from the dominant culture, if you ask to describe what's going on, the way the fish are arranged, there's one that seems to be just a little bit separate from the group, and a person from the dominant culture is inclined to say that fish is leading the other fish someplace. So the separate one is the leader. And then when they looked at uh, uh, people from China, their response tended to be the group is chasing that fish for some reason. <laughs> so the the locus of control is what they called it. it. It was in the larger thing. And and there is this sense that people in the dominant culture w w won't necessarily see the the uh, the forest for the trees, but there's there's a, a contextual sensitivity, locus of control in a group rather than an individual, and things like this. Well, what was interesting is this: th these findings were replicated, and then someone came along and said, "You know what? There's actually a strong difference between people who grew up in a wheat growing part of China and really mainly northern China and people who grow up grew up mainly in the rice growing because rice growing is, as you were talking about mud, it's labor intensive and people have to cooperate." Whereas the wheat, you can use a machine, put it all out there, and then you just leave it, you know, and it's not that you're lazy or something, but you just, you know, kind of, that's it, you could, it's easier to sort of, it, it and, and I don't know enough about rice farming to say that there isn't some mechanical easy way now that they, to do it, but this, these are traditional things, so it's like, there's a way in which it's easy with a tractor and so on to just plant the wheat, and meanwhile the rice people are really in it, you know, they're in the water, they're working together, and there's no way to really, you know, run the show easily by yourself and be an individual. And they showed that 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 cognitive difference was there. So it wasn't like a everyone in China thing. It was no, certain people, if they grew up with this experience of, of needing each other and really directly constantly experiencing the, their interwovenness, it, it was like a more Taoist attitude versus a more, you know, here I am, I'm, you know, take charge, <laughs> kind of. That's interesting. Uh, mm, mm. That's the thing. I think that's the thing about earth building. It lends itself to that group you know, the group work and the group making and the community around it as well that can come from that, Yeah, which is very powerful and that's a whole another part of it, you know. And then the the dynamics of that too within the group, how do you, how do you kind of harness the energy of that and then because some people will be really energetic at certain times and other people won't be and it's and it's not about kind of thinking, oh, gee, she's being lazy at the moment, you know. It says everyone's got their different energy to bring to it at different times, especially different times of the day mm -hmm. and after eating, do you know. And food becomes so important in that framework too because it is your fuel, do you know. You really felt that after every meal when you're doing earth building that it is your fuel and you can really notice how different foods affect you when you're having to expend so much energy all day as well. Yeah. Mm. It's also... You know, from the, and that, that communal aspect of eating together and then building together is beautiful, do you know? Yeah, I think. right, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
and that's sharing because if I help you build your house and you help me build mine, it's the same thing with like a, a community where, you know, uh, relating to food in a certain way is just automatically goes with, with a sharing attitude. You know, if it's a hunter-gatherer society, you know, hey, I found a tree that had a heck of a lot of nuts today, nuts for everybody. And I come back the next day and didn't find much, but somebody else, you know, did. They they hunted the gazelle, and here it is. It's for everybody to, uh, oftentimes in some of those cultures, it's the the person who's the who can't go on the hunt who gets to choose the first piece you know like you you can't couldn't go today on the hunt or you're physically not able so here you choose the first piece rather than mm-hmm. i got it it's mine you know and i get the first pick but the, you know these uh, these are and also it's so interesting what you're getting at too such an intimacy with the land because that cob came from i know where the that earth came from and i i know where my the water is and i know what i'm allowed to use or what i should use or traditionally what indigenous people would have used and what they wouldn't what they would have said is mm-hmm. no you can't use that for whatever reason maybe that that's a sacred place we don't take trees from there you can't mm-hmm. have those or that's not you can't take that that's a mother tree and uh, you, mm. you have to, you have to be. We don't know these things, right? We have to figure them out again to be really that connected to a place. When we're so used to saying, "I buy this land, and you put that building on it, and, <laughs> and it's happening come hell or high water." Yeah, that's right. And the weather, you know, the weather's another thing. Like the way you mix the cob is different to the weather. How long you leave it, you know, how dry or humid it is, how much rain you've got, the way you, you lay it on and allow air gaps if it's if it's really wet and damp you've got to put more kind of holes in it to let the air come through um and it was interesting actually working in ireland in the rain because i was the only australian with you know a raincoat on and all these irish people just working away and i'm thinking when are they gonna stop it's really raining and it was like they could tell when the rain was really there for a big rain because sometimes it wouldn't be raining at all and everyone would pack up and everyone would be under the cover and then a massive pour would come for ages and then at other times it would be raining and raining and everyone's still working and, and but they knew it was going to pass. It was just something they could tell by the, you know, the density of the air or the way the clouds hang, you know, hung. And I think working outside too, you become so much more intimately aware of the changes of the day like that, you know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I I have friends who live in Portland, and they say, well, you know, we just, no one takes an umbrella, you just get wet sometimes, but then you dry off, you know, it turns out when you, after you're wet, you dry, you know, yeah, <laughs> and it's yeah. never worth it to worry about, like, should I take an umbrella today? Well, you know, you can either take one every day, or you can just forget it, and you're going to get wet. <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it depends on your orientation. I wondered too about how this would impact, you know, like when you're making your own home. I think you and I have maybe mentioned this in some other conversation about how there is some evidence that maybe being in a built environment has cognitive limitations for us that we don't perceive because we think like oh i'm thinking like you know i might be an engineer or a lawyer rocket scientist and i'm in an office all day and look hey my rockets go to the moon we don't think there's an the fancy word an epistemic cost that there's no cost to our the quality of our knowing by being in those environments but there are studies that indicate that there is Mm -hmm. 
and studies that indicate that being just being in the built environment could lead us to be a little bit less pro-social, a little bit less environmentally aware and concerned. And I know we still need more data on that, but and I can post for anybody who's listening who wants that, I can share it. Um, but what do you think? What do you think about that in general? Because first of all, when you were talking about being in a in a built environment, you can I think you could just easily meditate in there. It wouldn't be that hard, even though these monks did like to go to mountainous places and be in the wild. I bet they'd say, "Well, sure, yeah, give me any room, and I can go. I can go into deep states of meditation." But do we potentially lose something? And do you think anything could be gained if I made that environment and made it out of more natural materials? Oh, for sure. You know, I think it's like, I thought about this a lot because your experience when you live in the city compared to when you don't live in the city and then you go back to the city and it's kind of like um, an assault. You know, I've personally felt like a very energetic, it's very dense with layers of energy and people and processing and time all condensed into one place. And I think when you're there for a long time, like when you're in a building, any normal, normally constructed building, I guess, by, by our, our standards, it's um, you kind of become used to it, you know. You become used to it when you in, live in the city or when you're in, an, in a traditionally built building, um, you, you become used to it. And it's not until you go outside of you know outside for your walk in nature that you feel like oh I can breathe now you know um and I think buildings that are earth built when you go into them I feel anyway and I I think a lot of people do you feel held by the building it's like it's hard to explain there's a density and um it's a different density to a kind of a built-up process density. It's like an earth density. It's like being in the earth, I guess, or bit laying on the ground. But that ground is up against your face and horizontal and vertical with your body. And you just feel this um, energy from that. And I had a, you know, my my parent, my my parents had an earth building when I was a baby. I think I. I can't remember the specifics of it. Mum said there was an earth floor and there was a big gap where snakes could come under the door. <laughs> they didn't live there for too long and it was like a mud brick building. And, you know, I think I have that in my memory somewhere um, because when I went into this very small earth-built building in Ireland, um, you know, I just burst into tears as soon as I went in there and I didn't expect that it was a little library and I thought I'm just going to go in and read their books and I just felt completely held by the building completely safe and completely kind of merged together with it I don't know how to explain that in any other terms it really like my boundaries between my body and the building became blurred like someone had rubbed out the edges of myself and the edges of the building and um I think when you're in it when you're in a kind of everyday building, it, you, you, you're kind of just coping. <laughs> you're just there and you're kind of a bit more insular. I mean, there's beautiful aspects, you know, the way the light's coming through my window now is beautiful. I really love that, you know, the way the, the light falls across the plasterboard, the way the timber feels under my feet, all these things. There's beautiful aspects to everything. 
that's you know human made and 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 that exists naturally but not that human made's not naturally but that's another conversation <laughs> but um yeah I just think that the experiences I've had in those buildings is very deep and very core and very peaceful mm. much more readily do you know mm-hmm. readily able to feel that Mind you, today, you know, today I was walking and I went to a grove that I used to visit a lot before I moved to Ireland and I hadn't been back there until this morning. And as soon as I walked into the grove, I felt the same feeling. And it's a grove of trees. They're not, they're not native to Australia. They're Douglas fir. I think they're probably American. Um, and they were planted in 1936 by some community group here along a river and they're quite out of context. I think it's because of the contrast to the the Australian environment that when you're going there, you feel it energetically quite different. But when I walked in there today, it was like I didn't even expect. I thought, oh, I'll just go in because that would be my meditation spot I used to go to a lot. I thought I'll just walk through here this morning, um, partly in preparation for your talk, you know. And um, and as soon as I walked in, I just felt hell. It's like a, a, a feeling held yeah Hmm. and that's a similar feeling to office buildings i think Mm -hmm. that you can feel Hmm. yeah i there are so many things that come to mind as you describe that one is that uh, joan halifax who's a wonderful human being um, a zen master anthropologist and uh, just a really really good heart being she took a shaman when she was doing anthropological work she stayed with a few different indigenous groups and she took a shaman to new york really you know revered guy and she thought that he would at least be impressed with new york because it's new york these giant buildings and you know she didn't think he was going to approve or anything but just kind of you know the sense of wow you know, you can't believe you guys did this. And his response was, this is a disease. Who would live like this? Why would anyone in, you, you're out of your minds that you would be willing to live like this. And then took, he, she took him to a, like one of the finest steakhouses in New York City. And uh, he's wearing his full shaman garb. The entire place is, you know, just aware of his presence and the food gets served and everyone's watching and he had lost one of his arms and she's cutting the meat for him and she cuts it and he takes a bite out of of it and he says he spits it out the whole restaurant is aware that this is happening he spits it out and he says this is dead not only is it dead but it's death and he wouldn't have another bite of it so Not only do we not know what we're missing, like we don't know what we're missing a lot of times. If we just grew up in the built environment and we grew up eating the food of the dominant culture, we've got no idea that we're not eating, that another culture would say you're not living and you're not even eating real food. You know, what you what mm. you call food, no, but I wouldn't serve that to my kids, you know. <laughs> mm. Mm. That's right, yeah. And it's interesting yeah. that we reached a point now where this is such a, I don't know if you saw this or if I shared it with you, I think I'll probably be repeating it like a broken record, but according to 
a recent article I saw, somebody did the calculation and figured out that we have now, with the human-built environment, exceeds the biomass of the earth now. We just surpassed the biomass of the earth. All that cement, all that steel and glass and all of that. I, now, of course, we might disagree with their calculations, but you can't imagine. We have, we've piled up a lot of stuff at this point. Mm-hmm. And a lot of skyscrapers and all, all this, but all that built material now exceeds the biomass of the planet, mm-hmm. which is extraordinary. Like, are we going to be more careful about what we build and how? And that seems to be part of what your call is here, you know. Yes, you could return to yourself, return to like a little bit more sanity. That's the mindfulness component in part two. And Mm. the slowing down, right? Mm. Yeah, and I think you, you know, you brought it to my attention with this project, uh, the Fast Slow project before, because, you know, maybe the right answer or the best thing to do is to not build anything sometimes. And I guess that's why I failed in some respects of being a traditional architect, because most of the time I thought people didn't really need to build what they were building. They probably didn't really need to build anything at all. You know, but people build things for all sorts of reasons, you know, the economy, save their relationships, you know, more space, prestige, um, a sense of sanity, (laughs) you know. If I just had that extra room, I'll feel better, you know. And then you do that and then you don't feel better because actually it was not the room, you know, it was the room in your mind, I guess. Mm. And so it's it's a very careful balance, I think, between do you need this shelter and how much do you need you know and that's one thing I became disillusioned with being an architect as well because a lot of it was about people doing things because they wanted to impress other people you know especially clients that are building their own house and they've got lots of money and they want it to be better than their friend's house or they want to invite their family over and everyone to say wow you know (laughs) and um and I just wasn't really interested in that and um it was kind of disheartening and upsetting as well. Is what is that? What are we doing this for? So yeah, I think it's really important. Is how much do we actually really need that that space that we think we do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really interesting. So many times in this conversation, I've also thought of Hunter Foster, which uh, and we've mm. talked a little bit about it and how he was against this. There's like a you know, you can make a lot of money as an architect if you're willing to do things that are probably unnecessary and to do, like, to over, essentially overbuild. Like, why do you need that giant statement whenever we've got, you know, redwoods around here that should be the most amazing thing around, you know? So why did we need your fancy building? I even was thinking a little bit, and I don't know what you think of this, but we have one of our UNESCO sites in on Turtle Island is, you know, actually four of them are Frank Lloyd Wright spaces, I think. And I sort of made a pilgrimage several times to Falling Water, which is the one he built on a waterfall. And I sometimes feel conflicted about it because it's like, wow, this is clearly like there's something that feels sacred about this. And there's something that feels like this was a guy who probably should have somehow found a different way to convey the message, like as if the house also doesn't belong there. You know, there's this weird tension where, and even like they have to, 
you like I have to do a lot to maintain that house just because it's a house built on a waterfall. And so there's going to be a consequence to that which Hundertwasser would be like, would say, that's great. It's impermanent. And so you get one, you get to live one family, one generation and then let it fall apart. I bet he would say, <laughs> but, um, but I don't know. What do you think about that building or do, have you ever thought much about it? Are you familiar with it? I, yeah, definitely know the building. I have never been there, and I, but I totally understand what you're saying because it, I just imagine how awesome it must feel to be in there, but also, you know, the most beautiful places that shouldn't be built on <laughs> as well. Perhaps you should have built it on the other side looking at the waterfall or something, do you know? Um, and that's the thing, like, I think that's our first instinct is I want it here. I want this on the top of the mountain. I want the best view. I want this. And, but actually for environmentally and for the efficiency of the building, it's not the best thing. Um, yeah, I think it's very important to consider taking a step back from your wants, you know, and yeah. the statement of what, you, what you're doing um, into kind of what's the and I think that, you know, how, what's the best way to consider the existing ecology where you are and how what you're doing is not taking away from that but is actually adding to that? Mm. You know, how, can, how can your building provide homes for other species as well as yourself, you know, mm. rather than kind of locking everything out? Right. Um, how can it, you know, how can the development we call it you know um contribute to the to the landscape more than it takes yeah what a big question question. yeah like isn't that you know can you can you think about how this how this place where you live and how you live there both of those questions you know like this place that you want to put there and how you will live with it to can you answer how both of them will help this ecology and further the conditions of life rather than take from them. And, you know, maybe, maybe you're, you're still not a happy human being, but, you know, or maybe you think you are, but, you know, what have you done at, the, at what cost to how many beings mm. when I'm just going to mm. cl- clear all these beings out and say they can't live here, I'm going to dig a big hole in the earth potentially, and the, whatever whoever lived there doesn't get to have that anymore. And we can mm. get so fed up, like, I was sometimes I was having this discussion a little bit in permaculture. On the one hand, people say, "Well, you know, like with gophers, you know, you just you're just going to have to kill them." And then, <laughs> um, and then we we were talking, and somebody else said, "Well, you know, well, actually, they're pretty territorial. So you know, you 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 only have like one gopher on a pretty large piece of land." And I thought, "Well, then, how big of a problem?" <laughs> Like, why are you sure you have to kill them? Or in, in like, if you're, why can't you let somebody else? Like, why can't you have more owls or invite them to come in and help, or the coyotes to come in and help? And but you know, like this, if the solution is I have to kill it, or I have to dig it out, or I have to cut it down, are we sure that that's the right answer? Yeah, yeah, it's very hard, you know. Like in this, you know, we have this ideal that we'd love the, the house in the middle of the woods or the bush. Um, you know, and that's kind of like you're saying with the Instagram or the Pinterest, you know, this is the ideal life, you know. This is me living my best self and I'm so connected to everything and isn't it wonderful, you know. But actually, you know, maybe an apartment in the middle of the city is actually the least impactful thing 
you know, you can do because it's already there. It's already messed up. <laughs> how can you go into that environment and make it, you know, um, how can you contribute to that environment, I guess? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm constantly conflicted about that because I'd, I'd love a cottage in the middle of, you know, the wilderness yeah. more than anything. Right. But then what's that going to do? Yeah. Maybe where I live, I actually live in the middle of a town in in this um you know this blue mount these blue mountains here and maybe I need to build my little earth building in my back garden in the middle of the town. Yeah. You know, rather than you know going out and trying and just ruining a piece of bush because I think it's making it nice and I want to look at you know the native plants. Right. As opposed to the building next door, which is a shop as well, do you know? So I think, yeah, it's a, it's a lot to think about in weighing up our wants, you know? It, oh, yeah. My goodness. And here where I, where I live, and I know parts of Australia, we've heard a lot uh, in the news about the big fires that you had. Um, and here, there, the, this is a place that needs to burn, like that if for you know hundreds of millions of years it's that's what it's done and then we come here and we might live like I live off grid here um this isn't I don't own the property but it was you know the person who who owns this he built it him built it all himself and it's off grid but nevertheless it's supposed to burn so what are we going to do about that that we live in a place that needs that and we're taking it away from it be you know no different than taking rain away from a rainforest to try to take fire out of a fire ecology when it belongs, this is where it lives. That's a really, exactly. we have huge, we have lots of houses and places like that. And what in the world do we do about that little fact? It's mm. very inconvenient. <laughs> yes, yeah. No, it's, it's the same here, you know. And then you have the approach, you know, the build to burn approach or the, the bunker approach, you know, where the whole thing will go over the top of it. You can all hide yeah. underneath and maybe the outside frame will burn. Yeah. Or then you've got the thing where it's completely fireproof and right. you've got shutters that you pull down and sprinklers that come out off the roof, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's really where the council in our local area is headed if you want to build in these flame zone areas. You've got to be shuttered up and your house has to survive it as much as it can. Yeah. There is the argument for the build to burn as well, do you know? Yeah. Get out safely, you know, and then maybe people <laughs> will, you know, kind of downscale their ambitions from the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. if it is going to be something that's sacrificed. Right. Um, mm. Now, how, do, do you feel comfortable saying much about your fast, slow project, or is it still something you kind of... Yeah, I can talk about that, yeah. Yeah, because I, I think, that, I mean, that really touches on what you were saying. How can we bridge the gap between, get people to slow down a little bit, but not make it seem insurmountable, like make it feel more possible? Mm. Well, I think, I guess with the Fast Slow Project, the idea was to bring that prefabricated timber framework that's already like a kit, you know, or a modular thing to site and so I guess all of that hard work in terms of trying to understand how it should be built um, how it's constructed together where do you get those materials from all of that is solved 
and that and and if it is you know produced with with a factory or somebody that's already producing these kinds of things and you can work with their existing system um, you can deliver that cost effectively to the home builder and that once that's on the site then they can earth it in whichever way that you they like whether it's straw bale or cobbing or rammed earth um, and so trying to come up with a system that is adaptable to those different things and you may you know you may choose to do some of it in timber cladding you may choose to do some of it here in you know Australia especially in the flame zone areas of corrugated iron you know there's not a purist approach to things I think it's about what you can what you can source you know as well and your time some people may want to do a complete earth building it will take a lot of time um, some people may just want that for the feature areas around say a fireplace or a seating mm. or somewhere where you can have that one-to-one kind of real contact with the self in the interior as well so that's that's the general idea of the project yeah so what people get is they get essentially a pattern and a modular design, so they don't have to design it for themselves everything, but the modular design makes it flexible. And then there's free prefabricated parts of it that they can then finish by do they get to get their hands dirty and get in with the land, but then they get to do that finishing work themselves. They've got a good, they've got the bones, and then they can kind of go from there. Is that right? That's right, yeah. 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 And what, what are the prospects for this uh, project right now? I mean, is it, are you developing it? Well, we were forging ahead with it in Ireland. I was very fortunate to get funding through the Irish Arts Council while I was there to do the research with different groups and to build up the project um, to a certain degree. I think the thing that it showed me was there's a million ways to do this and it really is actually quite context dependent, you know. So coming back here now, I'm in Australia, the way that I would realise it would probably be different to the Irish context because really it come, it's a you know highly regulated environment building um, and if you want it to be something that's accessible to more people, you want it to be able to be passed through all of the, you know, the council and the things that you that you want it to be. It's one thing to go and build something in your back garden without anybody knowing and not complying with anything, any safety or environmental, you know, sustainability kind of codes, but we really want it to um, be, a, you know, be able to be built by people. Um, so... I guess at the moment, just having arrived back here, we're, we're possibly thinking of doing it in our back garden because I have access to this piece of land. Um, I'm not ruining any other piece of bush to do it. I don't have to be overly worried about the bushfire in this location where I am, so the materials can be a little bit more flexible. Um, and I guess it's just just planning on and doing that initial prototype, do you know? Um, and then once that's done, seeing if there's interest for, you know, if anybody else wants to do it and we can test that out as well. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think it's such an exciting project because of this possibility that there's, it just lowers the, the bar 
or, or you know what I mean? Like that makes the access just a little bit easier to think, well, I don't have to figure the whole thing out. Somebody has done the research that you've done and has, they can give me the bones. They can give me a pattern that I can start with. And that, yeah, maybe I can find ways to, I mean, here we have things like, you know, sure, there's certain kinds of structures you can build on your own property, you know, and there are certain kinds of things, you know, you can call something a renovation rather than a new build and it gets you around some of the code issues. Um, but, you know, Mike Reynolds, who d does the spaceships, he found this, um, you know, the, the first documentary that came out about his work was about how he got into all kinds of trouble and then managed to get a law passed for a certain amount of experimental architecture. So he was able to, you know, make it be more accessible, again, for people to do, even though there might be problems with his approach. I mean, I'm, I, I know there are, he has his critics, you know, real, not crazy crackpot critics, but just, you know, real people who are just asking good questions about how he's doing things. But your work seems really exciting for that reason. So I'm glad to see. And then, but you're, and the important thing here is you're really encouraging people to make this a spiritual practice, you know, to whatever that means. But it's, you know, like a, you're not prescribing any religious views or anything, but you're saying, okay, you could do this with a, a meditative mind. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, a, you know, it's totally different in, in, um, practice isn't it to what you propose and it and I, and I think that's why doing this series of smaller kind of little projects in my home here as a test case um, just really watching the mind really watching the disturbances that occur um, and documenting that as I go you know that's the only way you can really know do you know you know you can talk to lots of people as well which I will be doing, figuring out what was the most stressful thing for them. Um, but I think it's, a, you know, there's definitely a lot there around expectations and external pressures versus the reality of what's coming out and mm -hmm. how to, you know, um, practice a non-attachment, I guess, to that as well. Yeah. It's a tricky thing. Oh, you know? yeah, isn't it? And it's like mm -hmm. the process, like going in knowing that it's going to hold a mirror up to you. And and can you really be okay? Can you handle that or are you going to squirm? You know, because it could really make the building process so transformative. And it could really bring a family together or bring a person some sanity. But to know ahead of time that you're not going to escape the fact your psyche is going to be involved in this anyway. So do you want to just do it deliberately or just, or not? Mm. We used to joke in architecture, you know, that basically they should teach you marriage counselling when you're training to become an architect because so many relationships fall apart when even when people aren't building their own house, just, just planning to build their own house, you know, and working with builders and architects to do that. It really puts a lot of strain um, on things. No, no, I think it's because people see that external manifestation of that thing in the world as feeling something or changing something. And I do too, do you know? I'd love a little mud hut to meditate in. Wouldn't it be wonderful, do you know, as opposed to at the end of my bed with the door closed because my child's watching television in the room next door, do you know? <laughs> I have this vision too, you know, and that's, I guess, why I can understand it because I'm just just the same as, you know, Everybody else, really, I'm just trying to to study it, yeah, yeah, as a process, yeah. 
And I and I'll just finish with this thought. I mean, I know that I I originally suggested, oh, maybe we should talk about this. But you you had written about inhabiting interconnectedness. Is that that's how you put it, right? Because I know we use it. I always say interwovenness, but it's very very common to say it your way. Interconnectedness, and I really thought that was such a magical idea of inhabiting. And I just wanted to acknowledge that, that what you're trying to invite us to do somehow is to inhabit reality. Like, if reality is interwovenness, if things are interconnected, then of course how you build your house is going to affect everything about the ecologies around there, and it's going to affect you. It's either going to be a, a way for you to, as you said, add to the landscape or not, just to continue perpetuating uh, this taking, but uh, inhabiting it, I just find the this the notion that we and I I don't know I know that you looked at it and I'll just remind you a little bit that Nietzsche has had written this wonderful passage where he says you know what we what we like to call knowledge isn't knowledge because we started to develop these weird habits in our minds. And he said, you know, like, if you look at the world, you you realize we've got these strange falsehoods that we believe in. And he gives these interesting examples. He says, well, we have the belief that there, um, there are enduring things, that there are equal things, that there are things at all, that there are bodies, substances, that a thing is just what it appears to be, that our will is free. And that what is good for me is just good in itself. And he says, well, you know, it doesn't appear to be that that's what reality is. It doesn't, it, like when you look for things, you find processes. When you, so therefore, when you look for enduring things, you just find processes that change. And when you look for substances, you don't find those either. And uh, all of this seems to be, but then he says, well, but, but the truth is we're like habitually tuned to the falsehoods. And so then it's, it's the weakest thing that we've got in us is the truth. He said he calls it the weakest form of knowledge. And then he says, well, we need to run an experiment to see whether or not we could actually embody reality. Not the falsehoods, not the things that we believe, but the truth that things really are interwoven so fully that it boggles the, 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 our habitual mind, which, which just freaks out, <laughs> you know, and just... And I just see your architecture project as part of that experiment. What would it mean? And I know that doesn't seem like a question. It's like a meditation. I'm just uh, whatever comes to mind for you in that in that thought because it's. I know it's a big one. He's asking us to perform a big experiment. And and look at and you're saying I'm performing it, man. And I'm recording. The, I'm documenting the details of me facing myself building. I just think it's so fascinating. So I, I'll just open that to you. To whatever you want to say about that. Mm. Well, thank you. I think the the idea of inhabiting, you know, like habit, habit is something, you know, that we do, obviously, but it's also something that becomes part of us, that dwells within us, and we dwell within it. And so I guess as much as we are in the world, the world is within us. And, and I and and in a way, it's kind of like saying interconnectivity twice <laughs> in different ways. But I guess people think of inhabiting as 
you know, the way we are in the world into connectivity as that relationship, deepening that relationship between things. And I don't, you know, I've experienced it separately in my meditations and my walking, you know, mindful walking, where that I do this thing, I kind of think A, B, C, like I draw attention to something, I, I get a balance between two things and I go into the deep connection between those two things and then everything else falls away. And it could be, you know, the feeling of the, the dew coming through my sneakers as I'm walking, you know. It could be the, the wind on my cheeks as I'm walking. It could be the sound of my raincoat, you know. And you're just going to really deeply into that connection between these different phenomena in the world coming together and it just explodes into this beautiful experience where there's no boundary between myself and the world and I guess because of the that experience of inhabiting interconnectivity through the process through making when I'm drawing um, wrapping I wrap fabric a lot around objects process of moving the body making um it's very meditative and very dissolving of kind of worries and boundaries and if I could just figure a way to bring that into the home building (laughs) you know if it was just even there's moments of that and and to really celebrate those moments so that the other things because there's always going to be the other worries you always there's always going to be you know, you can't get this material or someone said that window was going to be delivered on this day but it's coming six weeks later and the rain is coming, what are we going to do? You know, there's always going to be those things. The seeing yourself as separate to those, there's always going to be those problems. How do you, how do you, how do you experience the wholeness of it all um, as an experience? And it's the joy of the, the process of it, mm. you know, yeah. rather than the outcome, it's that process really enjoying it. Actually, Maybe I want my building to take six months longer because I'm enjoying it so much, <laughs> you right. know. Yeah. That is a life. It's some of the biggest things that some – it's one of the biggest things some people do in their life is physically build their own house. Yeah. You're so lucky if you're able to do it yeah. physically, financially, time-wise. And why not enjoy that joy of the making of it as a, as a pursuit in itself? So. Yeah. Yeah, Zhuangzi has got these clear descriptions of trying to make the shift that wisdom means that every step in a process is complete in itself. And the, the, you know, the distance between path and goal falls away. And I remember Thich Nhat Hanh being, he was asked about, how are you so mindful? Like, you're just so there, you're so mindful. And he said, well, I don't know what other people do, but I can tell you my secret and that is, for anything you do, if you just play around a little bit, you find that there's a more enjoyable way to do that activity. And if you're if you're enjoying yourself, you're being mindful. And as you're looking for the joy, you're engaging your creativity as well, and you're making the activity fresh and alive. So the enjoyment, which is of the old teaching, I always say people are always probably surprised to hear that Buddha's whole thing was to follow the path of joy because we think of it as, oh, they're monks and it's hard. And, and But his whole thing was, no, you can't torture yourself. And he became enlightened after he remembered 
having experienced joy as a child in a kind of meditative state. He didn't know that when he was a kid, that's what, that that's what it was, but that's what he said. Well, maybe the path of joy will lead me where I want to go. And so there, that's part of your radical suggestion, because you're saying, well, if you just enjoy your life more, you wouldn't need a big house, and you'd have fun building <laughs> this nice one. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, this is, it's been so nice to talk to you about your work and I, I'm, please keep me posted and maybe, you know, we can, you can, I can put a link, uh, if you have any video that you ever put up or we can do a follow up if you have any interesting findings either in the process or suppose, you know, that when it's done in quotes, right? If every step <laughs> is complete, then you can check in any time. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, same here. All right. Take care, my friend. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us. If you have questions, reflections, or stories to share about how we can better inhabit our world and live in right relationship with all beings and the ecologies we all depend on, get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.